0: Today I'm going to be in James chapter 5. In James chapter 5. I've enjoyed the book of James. It has beat me up rather well. And it doesn't stop here. As with the entire book, James is testing us. He's giving us these balances, these measuring sticks, if you will, on this is what a Christian should look like. And if you're a believer in Christ, this is, this should challenge you. This should uh, convict you and bring you closer to Christ. If you're not a believer in Christ, it will hopefully reveal that. Um, and that's what we're going to see here in chapter 5 as well. Before we get into it, allow me to pray. Father, I thank you, Lord. Thank you for just being back here. I thank you for this church. I thank you for. My brethren here, Lord, and just the joy it gives me to be with them. I pray for each one of them. I pray for those who aren't here. I certainly pray for Sherry and her recovery. Um, And I pray for Paul and his surgery coming up. God, that you would just guide the doctors and enable him to use this for your glory. God, and the same with Sherry and the same with Randy and his family and anyone else who isn't here. I also pray for Dylan as I as I think of him in Ghana on the other side of the world ministering for you. God, I pray for just boldness and strength and safety, Lord, for him and Julian as well. God, and anybody else who's not here for whatever reason, Lord, that you would be with them and bless them this morning. I pray now as we look into your word that you would help us to understand what you have for us in this, that you would make us, draw us, make us more like Christ through this. and In his name we pray. Amen. I forgot to mention Dylan in uh, in Ghana. Certainly keep him in your prayers. It is a place that's a lot different than our own. It's actually providential that that will come up in the sermon a little bit. But he is over there ministering to Christians, and I'm sure sharing the gospel with non-Christians. He's in a school, or able to able to get in the school and preach Christ. So, uh, And was not without trials on the way there, I know, with just the travel stuff. So keep him in your prayers as well. Uh, okay, we're in James chapter 5, and as we near the end, we probably won't get finished today. We'll probably have one more, but as we near the end... We see James addressing two different groups of people. And I, as I was preparing this, I was reading a lot of different commentaries, a lot of different sermons, things like that. And I come across an introduction to the fifth chapter of James that I thought just really brilliant, brilliantly illustrates what's going on. And it's a, it's a wall in the country of peru in lima peru it's a big city in peru and it's called the wall of shame so i looked this up and it is literally about a 15-foot concrete wall with razor wire on top of it and its sole purpose is to separate the rich from the poor and you can look at the pictures and on one side you have, I mean, like aerial photos, you can see trees and growth and nice houses. And right on the other side of the wall, I mean, five feet with a wall in between them is nothing but slums and terrible and no growth, no life. no, I mean, as far as vegetation, it's just desolate. And I thought, wow, just imagine that you have the rich And you have the poor, and James walks onto the top of the wall, and he's going to have a message for both people. That's kind of what we get here in the fifth chapter. He starts out um, speaking to the rich. James 5, 1, I'll read 1 through 3, he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. So here he's standing on the wall, he's preaching to the rich, and he's specifically preaching to the rich who are oppressing the poor or so suppressing the poor. And I believe in this case, he's actually talking to non-believers. He's addressing nonbelievers. And evidently, they're somehow in the church, related to the church, somehow connected to the church or else they wouldn't hear the message that James writes. Right. He wrote this to the church. So but it certainly doesn't he doesn't give any call to repentance. He doesn't give any salutation like you brethren who are rich repent. No, he's talking to, and it it doesn't, it's not a very clear message. I mean, very kind message, I should say. But before you get too judgmental on the rich, because it's real easy for us to all say, yeah, doesn't apply to me. I'm not rich. And certainly compared to a lot, I'm not rich. But... Depending on where you're standing in the world and who you're comparing yourself to all depends on how rich you are, right? Um, Because every single person in this room, when compared to the majority of the world, is extremely wealthy. Do you you know, when you look at the majority of the world, how much they live on per day? It's less than ten dollars. In Ghana, where Dylan is, I looked this up. It's one of the, it's a very poverty stricken place. They live on 33, their average salary in Ghana is $33 a month. The average salary in the United States is $4,000 a month. We're rich. If you're making more than $33 a month, you're rich. And really, if you want to study it out, And really understand kind of what being rich is. If you have more, anything in abundance to what you need, I think biblically you would be considered rich. So that's all of us. You can say, oh no, I only have what I need. Well, if you ever drink a pop, if you ever eat a donut, let's be honest, we don't need those. Right? We need nutrition. We don't need... So we're all in abundance to what we need especially when you compare ourselves to parts of Africa and to parts of India and Ghana, right? So compared, we are all rich. So even though, now, now I don't believe that James is speaking directly to you, unless you are using your riches to suppress the poor, and maybe you are, I don't know. Um, but I think with this passage of scripture it's a good time to examine ourselves as with James, as what James does throughout the whole book it's a time to examine ourselves in how our hearts within our heart we view money how in our heart do we view wealth right so let's let's do that Jesus said you cannot serve God and Mammon and the word Mammon is a um, In the Greek actually defines wealth, but it actually defines a confidence in your wealth. So, in other words, how we look at and how we depend on our wealth is a direct relationship with how we serve God. If you completely depend on and serve your wealth, then you cannot... Serve God. That's what Jesus said. All right? So we, we want to make sure that we have this right. We want to make sure that our heart is right. And if you're a believer in Christ, rest in this. He will make your heart right. And he may use this message to help bring that about. If you're not a believer, you may get upset with this. You may scoff at this. You may turn to the world. Does the world have any problem with wealth? Only when somebody else has it and I don't. Right? But the world teaches you go get wealth, go get rich, go earn your go earn a, a, you know, a nice, comfortable, cushy living. But but Jesus said you cannot serve God and mammon. And I would hope this is not an issue with this church. But here's the reality. I know this is an issue in this church. How do I know that? Because I know it's an issue with me. And I know if it's an issue with me, then there's a chance it's an issue with some of you. So we must examine this and we must find out where our heart lies when it comes to money and possessions and wealth. The fact is you may be living on the rich side of the wall and you may have no idea what's on the other side of the wall. I was reading... um, An update by Trevor Johnson I don't know if you guys know who Trevor Johnson is He came and spoke one time when we were still over at Stratford And um, he's a missionary in Papua New Guinea And he is In extremely bad shape He's had malaria 23 times Kind of comes with living in the jungle And he was telling us I just read it last night. Um, a, he, he's moved, his spleen is enlarged, his liver's enlarged. He's really on the brink of death. I mean, it's really serious where he's at. He's, he's had to leave the jungle to get medical care. All these things are going on, and he's having people contact him saying things like, You've done this to yourself. Why are you doing this? And and then he told this story about, he heard about this, I, I think it was a seminary. And I don't know which one or who it was or anything. But there was this class and they were studying missionaries. And they would take these missionaries from a long time ago and study them and determine if they were... May, mainly there for proclaiming the gospel or if they were really just kind of adventurer types that like to go out into places and do things. And I, I don't even remember the missionary's name who they brought up. But they determined that he was, and this was it was the guy who basically was one of the first ones into the middle of Africa. And they determined that he was about half and half. You know, he about half adventurer and about half truly proclaiming the gospel. And I'm reading this, and and now Trevor Johnson, who's basically devoted his life, his entire health, to to taking the gospel to Papua New Guinea, to the jungles. And I'm thinking, how arrogant are these people? And there's people sending him... Because he's been also fighting for, there's been a lot of illegal mining, gold mining, going on in the area where they are. And it's running the river, and the only source of meat that those people have are the fish. And they're not able to even get the protein that, I mean, they're already dying at the age, in the range of 20 to 30. And now they're running the river that they depend on. So he went to work, He went to fight for them to get this illegal mining stopped. And there's people just talking to him like you're just a humanitarian. That's distracting you from the gospel. And things like this. And, I'm, and, and his point is they're sitting in an air-conditioned home sipping a gourmet cup of coffee talking about how he's being distracted from the gospel. And a big part of our problem when it comes to missionary work, and I'm including me in this for sure, is I don't know what's on the other side of the wall, and that's what his point is when he's saying this. We would be way better off if we understood what was going on over there. And it's that way when we come when it comes to us considering wealth. We don't know what's on the other side of the wall. We may be in this city, and maybe you do, but I, I know that there's a chance that we don't know how impoverished. That wall, what it was hiding from our view. And we need to understand that God's blessings, He blesses some with wealth and not others. And it has nothing to do with you. I mean, it's not because of you. If you have the things that we have, we're fortunate by the sovereignty of God to live where we live. But we need to use that for His glory, for His purpose. So, let's look a little deeper into the subject of wealth. There's a couple of questions we need to ask. The first is, is wealth sin? Is having an abundance of things, is having wealth sin? And you can even compare it to us in the United States. There's some that are much more wealthy than others, right? Is that sinful? And the answer to this question is no. If it was sinful, God wouldn't have granted Abraham much wealth. Right? God's not going to grant sinful things. He wouldn't have granted Joseph much wealth. He wouldn't have granted David, Solomon. They were wealthy men. Um, So whether or not you have it is not sinful. But whether or not you worship it is sinful. And let me caution you in this. I've seen rich men worship wealth. And I've seen poor men worship it maybe more because they want it, they covet it, and they'll do things to get it. And regardless of whether you have it or not, if you feel like it will solve all your problems, if I just had some more money, everything would be okay, that's worshiping the wealth, that's worshiping mammon. And, and the, the truth is we've all been given a certain degree of wealth, And it's been given to us as stewards. We are stewards over this money, over these possessions. And so the more that God has given us, the more opportunity we have to serve God with it. Right? So it could be a gift from God. As a matter of fact, I would submit to you that it is and then, what you do with it. Um, It depends on your place with God, depends on your relationship with God. But if you've been given much, then much is going to be required. The same as in his gifts, if you've been given much, then much is going to be required. In your wealth, if you've been given much, much is going to be required. But also, the more we have, also the greater chance, the greater opportunity we have to fail. The more opportunities we miss because we have... The ability to help, and we don't help. And that's what James is addressing. Those who use their wealth, because they have a lot of it, with wealth, with possessions, comes power. Like it or not, that's the world we live in. And if you have more power, you can use that to suppress the poor and make more money, which I would, su- I would suggest that's what casinos do. That's what the lottery does. I heard a guy tell me when I was in college, it was before the lottery was in Oklahoma, and people would drive to Texas to get lottery tickets, they'd drive to Kansas. He said, all the lottery is is a tax on people that can't do math. I thought, it's really true. The odds of winning that thing are not in your favor, so you're basically paying a tax to the government because, I mean, it's just not good odds, right? But they suppress the poor. How many how many really wealthy people do you know that are spending every weekend in the casinos? Not very many. Why? Because they have their money. They may worship it just as much as the poor, but the poor they're spending their time there. Why? Because they think like well if I could just hit, if I could just hit big and I'd be wealthy. You know? So it is not the wealth that is sin, but it is the love of it. It's not the money that is sin. It is not the money that is the root of all evil, but the love of money that is the root of all evil. So the second question we must ask, first question, is wealth sin? Second question, so why is God so angry with these rich people? And we'll see this as we go through the rest of the chapter. Look at verse 4. James 5, verse 4, Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reaper have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. So what's going on there? These people, they paid the laborers to come in and work. Or they they hired the laborers to come in and work. And then they kept back the payment through fraud. So it's because one of the reasons that God is angry with the rich here is because of the way that they got their wealth. It was through wicked means. It was through, um, they were shysters, right? Has anybody ever worked for somebody like that? Probably. Probably have. There's probably times, especially if you've ever worked for yourself, you know you've come across this. Somebody that wants you there to do the work and then doesn't want to pay you when you leave. Um Happens a lot. We're living in a fallen world. These are sinners we're dealing with. And God's saying, and, and here's where we need to examine our hearts. Are we doing this? Are we getting our wealth? And it's not just through lack of payment to people. There's all kinds of ways that you can acquire wealth that are not good on the backs of others. Right? Are we doing that? And they were specifically withholding wages who had worked for them. Paul told Timothy, "What a workman is worthy of his wages." So if you're going to hire somebody to do something, you know this is a. I, I really didn't intend on getting into this, but there, there is some there is some reality, some very practical knowledge that we need to consider on this. Um, I was I was reading a blog or something i don't even know i don't even remember how i got there but it was a photographer she she was um i think it, i i don't know how i come across her but she was she's a professional photographer and she was she had made a comment on social media about all of her friends wanting her to do the work for free and she's like this is my living this is how I make money. I have to buy this equipment. You know, it costs a lot of money to buy the equipment. It takes a lot of time to take the pictures and then to go and edit the pictures and get them all printed out and stuff. And so, and, and this could apply to anything, artwork, music, things like that. If you need, um, and, and it's always something like, uh, well, it'll be a great opportunity for you to get some experience or... You know, those kind of things, right? If you're going to get, if you need somebody to do work, I'm sure Randy has dealt with this. Anybody that owns their own business, Isaiah is an artist. If you need somebody to do some work and you can't afford it, don't ask them to do it. A workman is worthy of their wage, right? Don't ask them. Don't bring it up. If you do ask them, pay them. It's, I mean, it's pretty simple as that, okay? And and if you're not willing to do that, then you need to examine your heart and how you consider money, right? If you want to support somebody who's trying to get a business started, support them by employing them. Buy from them and pay them, right? So the second thing was how they used their wealth. If you go back to verse 3, he says, Your gold and your silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. And then he says this, You have heaped up your treasure in the last days. And you can see a lot of parallels in James here with his brother, Jesus, his Lord, Jesus, but also his half-brother. Matthew 6, if you want to turn there, turn to Matthew 6, verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. John MacArthur said, you show me where a man is laying his treasure and I'll show you where his heart is. That's exactly what Christ said. That's exactly what James is talking about. He he said, they spin it, look at verse 5. Back in James 5, 5, he says, you have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury You have lived on the earth in luxury, or in in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. They spent their wealth on themselves, And and the the language here is they indulged in things they did not need. That's how you get fat, right? You give more calories than are needed in order to put fat on an animal. He says, you've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. The way, and, and when we're talking about slaughtering an animal, what, what we do with animals to get them ready for slaughter, like say it's cattle, we take them off the grass. They need the grass to live, right? They need that roughage. We take them off the grass, and we put them in here and we feed them a very high energy diet. Corn, grain. And what's, it, what's the purpose? It's to fatten them up. So they're getting way more than they need so that we can put fat on them so that we can slaughter them and eat them. It's for our purpose for that to happen. But what the language here that James is using is you're taking all of this that God has given you, because if you have anything, it's because he's given it to you. You're taking all of that and you're indulging in it and you're keeping way more than you need while those people over on the other side of the wall are starving. You're getting fat and they're dying. Right? That's what he's talking about. They spend it on themselves. So what do we do? What do we do with this wealth? I could, I could sit up here and I could preach that you need to give so that God will bless you. I could preach that if you give this much money, God's going to give it to you threefold and it would be a lie. Because the reality is, God may not give you threefold for what you give when it comes to finances you may give 10% of your paycheck, and you may miss it. Matter of fact, I will tell you this. The best time when the giving gets real is when you do miss it. When you give enough to where you actually feel it. And, and there's no guarantee that God's going to... I was taught that if whatever you give, then it would be like you never, you, you'll never notice it. That's what I was taught. And I know like word of faith, it's taught, it'll give, be given to you tenfold. You give $100, you're getting 1000 The truth is, God has already given you everything you need. If you're a believer in Him, I don't care if we die in poverty, it's worth it. Is it not worth it for the gospel of Jesus Christ? He died for you. And you're going to say, man, I don't know if I can trust Him to give this extra 20 bucks. I don't know if I can trust him to to send the money to to have the bibles translated into other languages. I know he provided that for me last month. I know I didn't think I was going to be able to make it to work and a check showed up. I know that he always has come through, but I don't know if I can trust him. He saved your soul. And if you can't trust him with your money, you can't trust him with your soul. Matter of fact, if you don't trust him with your money, you may not trust him with your soul. You need to examine your heart on this. In Amos, Amos said this. Amos said, hear this word, you cows of Bashan who are on the mountain of Samaria. Who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. You want to sit and get fat like the cows for slaughter? Then you're going to be taken away like a cow for slaughter. Take what God has given you and be like George Mueller was, a funnel, a dispersal. Millions upon millions of dollars went through him. And what did he do with it? He built orphanages. He fed the poor. He used it to spread the gospel. We should be doing the same. The third thing, they used the power that comes with wealth to oppress the just. In verse 6, he says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. And he does not resist you. He's talking about Christ and he's talking about Christ's people in this time. This is this is shortly before Titus came in and invaded Jerusalem. This is right before the temple was destroyed. And no doubt he is speaking to wealthy Jews. And there were a lot of Jews, there were a lot of Israelites in that time who had gotten very wealthy by playing both sides, right? That's what the publicans were. The publicans were people that oppressed the Jewish people so and then kept a portion for themselves and then gave the taxes to Rome. That's why Jesus was so against publicans tax collectors it wasn't because they were just doing their job no they were oppressing their own people god's people to give it to the evil regime of rome there was many people who had gotten wealthy because of this and i think that's who he's talking to here they're oppressing the just they're oppressing the christians they oppressed christ why christ came in and said christ came in with a message that says you can't do this well what do wait, wait. He's getting into our power. He's getting into our money. He's getting into our way of life. What are, we going to, what are we going to do? Let's kill him. And they kill him. And what does he do? He says, I'll still forgive you if you come to me. If you repent and believe in me, you'll still be forgiven. And you can start to learn and proceed in the way of Christ." But that's the third reason they use the power that comes with wealth to oppress the just. And so there it is. James has stood on the wall of shame and he's preached to the rich. He's given you and I major things to think about when it comes to money. He's given you and I things to really meditate on. And and trust me, as I was... as I. <laughs> When I finished this, when I finished preparing is when I went and checked my email and I got the email from Trevor Johnson. And I saw, I saw the anguish that they're dealing with. And yet he and, and one of the questions that people had asked is, why, why do you not have more money saved back? I mean, they're being supported And he said, well, we've just finished paying off a $30,000 dormitory for the kids to have a school. And in this school, they're teaching them Christ. They're teaching them the gospel. They're teaching them the Bible. And also things like sanitation so that maybe they won't die by the time they're 15. And he's using his funds for that. And here I am. Acting like. The fat cow. Right? And so we have to examine this. Are you an unbeliever? Who is putting too much faith in your wealth? Because trust me. As you go back. If you go back to. The first part. Verse 1. You weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. He's not even talking futuristic here. This is how worthless your worldly wealth is. It might as well already be eaten by moths. It might as well already be corrupted. Your gold and silver are corroded. What are they? They're temporary. They will burn in the fire. Are you depending on that? Are you a professing Christian? That has not yet turned from your confidence in your worldly possessions? Are you dependent too much on what you have? Are you afraid to let it go? Or are you truly born again? And this message is a reminder that you need to use the gifts and possessions that God has put you in charge of. For his glory and his purpose. And we're not all called to sell everything we own i not, not asking you to do that and go to Ghana or go to Papua New Guinea. I praise God for the ones that he has sent there and the heart that they have for those people. But we are all called to glorify God through what he has given us. And it may be holding the rope for the guy that's going down into the cave. It may be helping out our missionaries in France. It may be helping out AIM. the the missionaries in India. It may be helping out here. For some of you, it may be as simple as starting to give to the church. But what is it? Is it worth holding on to? Is it worth holding on to or is it worth giving to Christ? And I pray you're in the third. I pray that you truly belong to Christ and that this is a reminder that we need to Tempor- that we need to um, forget about this temporary world, that we need to place our treasures in heaven. And it also may be a thing where you, you may be not um, working diligently enough to provide for your family and to pro- provide for your church family, an extended church family, missionaries, and the work that's going on around you. It may be something that God has called you to stay here and work hard so that he will provide you some abundance so that you can use that abundance for his glory. In any regards, it's taking what God has given you, the gifts that God has given you. If you're gifted in business, use it. Use that gift. Develop it. And use it for God's glory. If you're gifted in hard work, labor, skills, develop it. Use it for God's glory. If you're gifted to go to the mission field, develop it, plan it, and go. And and the mission field's not always in Ghana. It's not always overseas. The mission field's here, and we're all called to that. And use the resources that God has given us to go into that. But now, as we go on into verse seven. He's going to turn his attention. He's been preaching to the rich, and now he's going to turn his attention to the oppressed, to the Christian brothers and sisters who are in need of encouragement under this oppression. And if you're like me, you can kind of feel like you fit in on both sides. It depends on who you're comparing us to, right? If you compare me to uh, Papua New Guinea, I'm very wealthy. If you compare me to a large, large part of this nation, I may be on the poor side. I mean, you know it's reality, but the truth is what we're really wanting to look at here is the Christian, the oppression, the trials that the Christian has and and we would not dare to compare ourselves to the Christians before the Reformation, who are being burned at the stake i wouldn't even I would not dare compare ourselves to the Christians who are in China who are being killed or in in many islam Muslim countries who are being beheaded, but yet we still have trials here. And I'll tell you this, the, the persecution that they can bring on us is, is not as oppressive as the sin that we deal with every day. So we're all dealing with it. We're all in this oppressive state that we need this message that he starts here in verse 7. And what is the message? What is the message does he have time for us in times of trial or oppression? What should we do? Verse 7, be patient. Be patient. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. The word is macrothumia. And it means to suffer long long. Be long-suffering. We interchange that with patience, but he's actually talking about suffering here. And while we're on this earth, there's going to be suffering. I've been reminded of this a lot the last few weeks. Because we are living in a sinful world, because the people that we deal with are fallen in their nature, they're sinners by nature, there is always going to be heartache. There's always going to be trials. And there's always going to be physical trials. I praise God that we live in a time when we can have medical help. I was I was watching a documentary in my class the other day about antibiotics. And man, we forget how wonderful those are to have. Without them, probably a third of the people in here wouldn't be here just by the way infection worked before we had them. So we live in a great time we should be thankful for, but it doesn't matter. I mean, no matter how far the medical advances go, death will always loom on the other side. It's inevitable. There's no way to beat it except one, and it's already been done, and that's what we should be focusing on, is Christ And that's what it is. So, it's to suffer long. Whatever comes your way, suffer. Why? Because the end result is worth it. And then he says, what do you, so, what do we do when um, dealing with oppressors? What do we do when dealing with trials? He says, suffer long. Um, It actually even means to hold out under trial. It's like the enemy's firing on you and you know if you can just hold on long enough the backups are coming right the cavalry's on its way it's to stand fast don't surrender don't give up a long protracted restraint of the soul from yielding to passion especially, especially the passion of anger so we go it's dealing with the heart We're being attacked. We're being bombarded. Paul's message this morning, he's talking about all the different arguments against the Bible. Does anybody else find themselves getting angry when they start hearing those? I do. What does James suggest? Be patient. Without bursting into anger, be patient. If it's not for the grace of God, we're on the same attack. Right? We're spewing out the same ignorant questions. And he gives us examples of what patience looks like. The first one he gives is the farmer. Right? Verse 7 See how the farmer waits for precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. That is so true in agriculture. I I love agriculture. You guys know that. And um, there's some parts of it that require more patience than others. others. But there is no feeling like when you see your plants come out of the ground and you think, oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. But what happens if you go pick, and we planted peach trees about two years ago. And so I'm thinking maybe this year, maybe this year we might start to see some blooms and get some fruit. Okay? And I'm really hoping that's what happens. So when that happens and they bloom and there they are, what's going to happen if I go pick them a little early? I've just ruined the entire crop. I've picked all the green peaches off of there and you bite into them things and they're worthless. Right? The farmer is patient. He waits patiently for the crop to mature for the crop to ripen and then he goes and picks it then he goes and harvests it if you harvest wheat before it is ready it is no good it will it will rot because it's not dry enough it will it'll actually it can actually combust it can get generate so much heat that it could catch on fire the farmer needs to be patient what if it was just in general farmers What if every time they had a bad year, they quit? What if every farmer that had a bad year was not patient enough to continue? Well, I can tell you this. We wouldn't have to worry about being overweight anymore. We would all be starving. Because they're out there raising it with their patience so that we can have food. Be patient. In verse 8, he says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. We have been told, we have been promised, and we believe that Christ will return for his bride, the church. And if you're born again, you belong to that bride. You are part of the inheritance that he is coming back for. You, he paid the price for you. Why don't we establish our hearts to act like this is true? Why don't we live our life to act like this is true? We get so frustrated with things that are going on around us. We get so frustrated with the cares of this world. And we forget that this world is not our home. We are going to a place that will be perfect. We are going to a place where these trials will be no more. Where this pain will be no more. Where there will be no more heartache. There will be no more worrying. And yet we live this life like this is it. We live it like this is the end all. It's not. It's temporary. And we should constantly remind ourselves and others around us we're moving on. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As I was thinking about this verse, I thought, you know, we should really be careful of our complaints, we are called to confess our sins to one another, and that's a good thing. We're, we're called to share our burdens with one another so that our brothers and sisters can bear them with us. That those are good things, but if we're not careful, our confessing our sins and our sharing our burdens becomes whining and complaining. That's the reality. There's a difference in sharing a real trial, a real pro- problem, and just complaining about things that we can't change. And I think in those cases, instead of complaining, instead of repeatedly telling others of our problems, we should be patient. We should focus on the return of Christ, and we should focus on serving others And if everybody is doing that, you know, I talked about marriage not too long ago in equipping hour. If both the husband and the wife are completely dedicated to serving the other, it's one of the most glorious things you will see. And it's really no different within the bride of Christ. We should be constantly seeking to serve others. And as we do that, it takes our focus off of our own complaints. And so we shouldn't be grumbling against one another For whatever the reason, whatever the problems are. And listen, we're all guilty of this. We've all went into times, and my wife bears the blunt of it. I can put up a pretty good front in front of most. And then, bless her heart, when I get home, sometimes I unload. And she just is patient with me. It's like she reads James or something. And we all do it. But we should, we should try, we should strive not to do that. We should strive not to grumble against one another. Are there problems? Guess what? You can look to the people to the right and the left of you, don't do it. You can look behind you, in front of you, and everybody you look at has problems. And the more you get to know them, the more you realize them. Guess what? You have problems too. Let's not grumble about one another. Let's pull aside one another and help each other go through this. Matthew Henry said this on this point. He said, fretfulness and discontent expose us to the just judgment of God. And we bring more calamities upon ourselves by our murmuring, just distrustful, envious groans and grudgings against one another than we are aware of. And that is the truth. There's times when I know I've hurt people. And I was not intending to do that. But just because of my own selfish nature, it happened. And there's times when you have too. And we should be extremely careful not to do that. It brings more trouble, more problems than we'll ever know. And so just be aware of that. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So he gives us another example. How do you become patient? How do you work on this patience? It says be patient. That seems simple. It's easy said, not easily done, right? Well, first, consider the farmer. Look to examples that God has given you to learn patience. In this one he says, consider the prophets, right? Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Um And I know we get impatient at times. We want to see the fruits of our labor. We want to see more people saved. I want to see more people saved. I really do. I want to see more people who I get to share Christ with come to Christ. I want to see more fruit with the people who have come to Christ. I want to see them growing faster and, and stronger. I want to see myself growing faster and stronger. I want to see my sins fall away. I want to quit struggling with sins over and over again. And he says, consider the prophets. And I thought of Jeremiah. God told Jeremiah, go tell Israel all of this. Go preach this to them. And what? Oh, and by the way, they're not going to hear you. What did Jeremiah do? He did exactly what God said. He went and preached the truth to the nation of Israel, even knowing that they wouldn't hear it. Why? He had patience. He had patience. Consider Noah. 120 years preacher of righteousness. They mocked him. They scoffed him. He he continued to preach righteousness. Can you imagine that? Going to the pastor's conference? Going to the whatever hot biblical convention going on well hey how many did you get saved this year none how about last year none how about the last hundred years none what have you been doing building a boat right it's a pretty important boat though he's gonna save eight eight Why? Because he's doing what God told him, and he's being patient. Patience. Um, And then, of course, I mean, we could go on and on through the prophets. If you need to develop patience, go read about these who had patience. It kind of makes our own problems seem small, too, a lot of times. I mean, Noah's facing the destruction of the entire world. And we're worried about our washing machine. You know, I mean, it really does, but go read about them, go read about Job in, in, verse, um, in, in verse 11, indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. And you can go read Job and it will help you with patience because you'll see a very patient man who loved the Lord he lost everything right he lost his family he lost his wealth and he was wealthy and what did and even his friends were why don't you just curse God and die and what did he do he blessed God He stayed with him. He had patience. He had long suffering. He suffered through the trials. And God came to his rescue at the end. And that's the key to it. When we find ourselves in trials and losing patience, we go back. We read the ones who came before us. We read the ones who have been through it already. And we can see the end to the other side. We know that that God brought them through it. We know that God brought Abraham through the trial of putting his own son on the altar. We know that God brought David through all the battles and trials before he became king. David was, David was in a cave hiding out. And it seemed like all was lost. They went back. Their wives had been taken. His own army was turning against him. And it was, just, it was a bleak, bleak moment in his life. And it says that David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And I always think, and I've actually heard Ronnie preach this. Um, he probably went back to that time when he killed the bear. He probably went back to that time when he killed the lion. He probably thought of the time when he faced Goliath as a child. And God saw him through it every time. And we can do the same. There's times in your lives that God has seen you through trials. Think on those and then go to others. Think on David. Think on Job. Think on Jeremiah. God has always and will always be faithful through these to the end. The same Spirit of God that was there with Noah that gave him the patience to build that ark Even though it seemed bleak, there was very few converts, no converts. And the very same spirit that gave Job the ability and the strength to go through what he did dwells in you. Be patient. The best way to bear afflictions is to look to the end of them. And the pity of God is such that He will not delay the bringing our trials to an end when His purpose purposes are fully filled. So you're in a trial, God has a purpose. Look past the storm to the other side. And He will bless you in that. He will bring you through it. And He, as soon as His purpose is fulfilled with that, His mercy... Will be known, and the thing—the thing about trials, the thing about any kind of suppression, uh, any kind of persecution—is that God will, you will find Him, and you will draw closer to Him in the midst of that than you ever would have without it. And so that's what another encouraging thing to remember. And the the bottom line is this. The worst thing they can do, what what can they do? They kill you? Paul said to live is Christ and to die is gain. So if they leave you alive, you get to preach Christ, you get to proclaim him, you get to glorify him on this earth the more. And if they kill you instantaneously, you will be dwelling in the presence of the Father. You'll be there, the pain will be gone, the hurt will be gone so, we have nothing to fear, brethren. We have nothing to fear in these trials. We have nothing to fear in persecution. We have God to fear, and that's it. And so, let's honor Him with our finances. Let's honor Him with our possessions, with our wealth, with our trials, with our persecutions. Let's turn to Christ and live our lives as if He is coming back because He is. And it will be soon. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you, Lord, for the conviction that you've brought on me. And God, I thank you that no matter how distracted I get and where my mind wanders and how I drift away, you always bring me back. What a glorious testimony to your power and your love and your mercy. God, I... I I just I praise you for that. I pray, Lord, for more a more more of a desire to glorify you in all that I have and all that I do. God, as I know I have utterly failed you in this, but I pray, God, that you would help me to right the ship now, that you would direct my heart and put me on a path of righteousness to glorify you, Lord. And I pray that for each one here. And for all those who aren't here, God, I pray for you to minister to them today and wherever they are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.